I had some cases early on in my career where the patients actually didn't want certain doctors or certain PAs included because they liked them. Well, Arizona is an extraordinary Yes. And if you live out in something to stick some, where are you going to die? Hello and welcome, Rick Vicata. It is time for the June issue of Risk Management Monthly. And with us, as usual, Ann Arbor, Michigan, is uh, Greg Henry. Yes. And our recurring guest, uh, Rachel Linder, who's uh, in Phoenix. Uh, I trust you both are well. Yeah, as much as I can be at this point in time. But let me tell you, (laughs) we're sitting here looking at the numbers from California. It's unbelievable. You know, here in Michigan this morning, it's about uh, 67 degrees. And you're what, like 117 or something out there? Yeah, Um, don't look at our numbers. Look at Rachel's numbers. Rachel's got the 117. Uh, uh, I should declare that we have no conflicts of interest because... um, we we know nothing. So let's get started. The uh, first uh, item is uh, in the news. Can a healthcare worker refuse the COVID-19 vaccine? You know, we brought that up uh, last month when it was kind of uh, an issue with the Methodist hospital system. 26,000 employees. And um, as anticipated, people were suing that uh, all the kinds of bad things were going to happen. So this month it got settled. The federal judge dismissed the case. <laughs> they didn't even have the, they didn't really even to get started. It said, sorry, it's over before it starts. And uh, so this judge is actually a little annoyed at this whole thing. He said that the decision to uh, mandate inoculations for its employees was consistent with public policy. And he rejected the argument that vaccines were experimental and dangerous. Uh, Any this thoughts? Isn't, this isn't the only case of this, though, Rick. There are several others going on in the country, and they really boil down to four points. Uh, one of them is, what do you do in that hospital? Who are you in contact with? Uh, do you give out direct care? We've got the rights of the individual versus the rights of the patients, those people are being taken care of. I don't think this is a settled issue yet, Rick. And particularly as we see people going back to work, um, I, I think I think there's going to be a lot more discussion about what this uh, is going to mean as as a package. What are you allowed to do? What are employers allowed to say? Because uh, it is not a simple case. Rachel, any thoughts? Yeah, it's, you know, this is certainly not the first time this issue has come up, whether or not you can mandate vaccines. It's come up through schools and it's come up through employers before, not in the context of COVID, obviously, but things like flu vaccines, it's been litigated. And I think this decision is consistent with where courts have fallen on this previously, which is, yes, you can require it in the context of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which gives you, you know, people the ability to say they have an out for various health reasons and the Civil Rights Act, which gives employees the ability to claim it out for various religious exemptions. So um, even though they're very clear, yes, employers can require it, there are limitations on that under those two acts. So it's not like black and white, as it seems. You know, this fellow said that the hospital's employees are not participating in a human trial, because that's one of the assertions. Uh, Methodist is just trying to do a good job and protect its employees. He said that Texas... 
uh, the Texas law only protects employees from termination for refusing to commit a criminal act. <laughs> you know, I thought I think it's kind of pretty yeah. pretty clear. They he called reprehensible, reprehensible the contention that this was akin to medical experimentation during the Holocaust. I think it's a little stretch. A little yeah, stretch, that, that's you know, a stretch. You know. And the bottom line is, where does experimentation begin? And we pretty much have some decent data. How many drugs do we give out where we have this much information over a period of about six months? I mean, this is actually pretty good uh, when, when you've actually given out 200 million doses of something. Uh, I mean, that's statistically pretty sound data that there's not something horrible happening around the country. Well, as far as I know, all of these companies are now uh, applying to, to have these uh, emergency waivers taken off and making right. them the standard um, uh, approved uh, drugs. You know, I don't know personally what is involved in a, a drug's uh, being studied and getting off uh, some kind of emergency list, but you're right. This has got to be one of the largest studies of a drug ever in the world, in the world. Yes. And if you're looking for like things that happen after a drug is approved, like in this po post-marketing surveillance thing, yeah, well, okay, they found some of these clots in uh, the brain that were not necessarily good, but less I heard there were like 18 or 20, and though I'm sure there's more, but the denominator is 100, 200, 500 million when you look around the world. Um, so the, the, this thing just didn't, just didn't work. And there are, you know, there's another side to this. There was an article which is cited there called um, University Vi uh, Vaccine Mandates Violate Medical Ethics. We're, we're being unethical if you're ma mandating that. Uh, they say that uh, cost benefit in terms of like young people, they don't need it, and they're more sub and they're just as much subjected to problems. And there's been some myocarditis reported it, and uh, young people have gotten the vaccine. Um, that's true. And um, but the judge says these people are not part of a human trial. This is ridiculous. Nope. So Methodist was upheld, and I think that I think it's kind of like similar to Felicia and, and uh, Rachel was exactly right. You have a couple other rules and regulations that have uh, apply here, and yeah, you maybe get get off or some kind of religious exemption or something like that. But 178 people uh, were were suspended as a result of this. <clears throat> Not too many, really, considering 26,000 as a denominator. Well, as was pointed out in, in one of the Michigan cases going on here, that. Uh, yeah, you know, whose ox gets gored, who are we supposed to protect? Is the hospital then liable if one of its employees gives COVID to somebody else and they have a bad outcome? I, I don't I don't think this is a simple uh, yes or no answer. And they uh, they did point out that there are half the people in the hospital who probably don't come in contact with patients in any, you know, the guy who fixes the plumbing may not be the same level as the nurse, that sort of thing. But we haven't we haven't decided those those cases yet here in Michigan. Uh, any final thoughts? 
I think you, when you work in the hospital, you're going to have to get, get your jab, as they say in England. Yes. Huh. Yeah. I'm going to move on to our, our next study that uh, came out actually at the end of last year, looking at malpractice claims involving uh, APPs or NPPs, whatever terminology you want to use. This was in the Journal of Healthcare Risk Management. It was kind of the first study trying to look at claims that only involved either PAs or APRNs, which they defined as NPs, um, nurse anesthetists, and nurse midwives. Basically, they, they looked at uh, about 55,000 claims from a national database that uh, they, they think holds about 30% of all claims nationwide. And so they looked at these 55,000 claims and they identified 26 cases in which PAs were named as the sole defendants and just 63 cases in which the APRNs were named as sole defendants. So out of those 55,000, not too many. And they tried to break them down and look at, you know, what are these NPPs getting sued for in cases where physicians aren't involved versus those in which they are. They weren't able to find a ton of of distinction, actually. I, I thought the most interesting part of this is that how few cases there were in which the NPPs were named as sole defendants. I thought that was kind of the most interesting takeaway. Well, you know, it, when you think about it, all the cases I've been involved in over the years, uh, you usually see from the plaintiff's standpoint, they'd like to start out by naming as many people as possible uh, so that so they're not accused of legal malpractice, leaving someone out who who then the statute of limitations runs on and are, and can't be included. So they're going to err, I think, on the side of more people, not less people. And when you think about it, why wouldn't you do that as the plaintiff? Bring as many people in as possible because you can always kick people out. It's adding them later, which is the problem. I agree, Rachel. This number is like really uh, tiny. I would, I would, you know, out of all of these claims, thirty-seven thousand involve physicians. So yeah. it's like the, that puts helps put it in perspective as well. Uh, I think everybody says, well, as PAs and MPs get more and more involved in uh, care, and as they become autonomous, at least on the nursing side, uh, there was some review that basically said there will be physician supervisors, will, their, their risk will go away because the nurses are now autonomous, while their autonomous nurses' risk will go up. Uh, that may be but we, they have a long way to go to catch up to the doctors. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Well, the other thing is, who look for the pot of gold? Where's the most money? Where is where is the where are we most most likely to score as the plaintiff here? And it's with the docs, and it's with the doc organizations and the hospital itself. But to just to pick out a PA or an NP. Probably it doesn't make a lot of financial sense either. Well, they're probably insured by the hospital or their employer. So right. uh, the, the same deep pot is connected to them as it's connected to the physicians. And depending on the screw up, um, there, were, there was a little little thing there about who wins. And 32% of the, of the PA and P claims paid money which is uh, versus 8% of the physicians, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, a substantial difference. But given the numbers are so small, if we got a statistician in here, they might say, 
you know, this is all just kind of like uh, background noise. And Rick, you made the point that people are predicting that these numbers will come, the, the numbers of lawsuits against physicians versus NPPs will kind of merge and um, start to even out a little bit. But I think that we have to be careful in assuming that because, and really we have to be careful in assuming that having independence in a state is going to uh, protect physicians from liability. And the reason for that is that even in most states where uh, NPPs have the ability to practice independently, still under hospital bylaws or for billing purposes, they're technically being supervised by a physician, uh, mostly so that they can, you know, the hospital or whatever group can charge the physician rate. But in those cases, even if they're behaving independently, if they're getting billed, that physician is going to be on the hook in just the same way. And so I think unless we're actually seeing independent practice more so than we are now, the liability risk for physicians are going to go up, not down. Yes, I agree. You know, I saw, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There, one of the things where they tried to tease out what was the uh, cause of the majority of the claims, they weren't able to do that particularly well, but they found out that uh, airway procedures performed by uh, the nurse practitioners tended to be a recurring uh, problem, and they suggested that maybe people look at airways uh, procedures being done by nurse practitioners independently um, because yep. they are, you can get into trouble real quick in, if you're and, not really familiar with how to do that stuff. But understand, that's a self-selected group. I mean, when you're talking about emergency airway procedures, you've got a group that is already not not got a great survival rate so it, it it's uh you, you got to look very carefully at the group of patients in the uh in the process well this study actually was not specific to emergency medicine i mean it's like which makes it in emergency medicine there must be even fewer suits given the totality of everybody right. had um such a small number so you know this this kind of comes into the idea of uh, they practice safely. They don't get into trouble. They don't practice the, beyond the uh, scope of their um, abilities. And uh, there's all of this going on now where between PAs and MPs. And uh, recently, the PA Association, May 13th, said, we are no longer physician assistants. We are now physician uh, associates. Uh, apparently, there's going to be some a lot of work to transition this over. It's going to cost a lot of money to do it. I thought, that, did I see some number like $20 million? Anyway, it's going to cost a lot of money. And every medical society that I know has come out and said, whoa, 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 no, no, we don't support this. Nobody supports this because it's perceived that this is kind of like yourself um, advancing yourself in that well, in the academic system, an assistant is below an associate. You know, well, that's not what this is about. I think the yes. idea is that this is about choosing a name that they think is more appropriate for their behavior. Nobody wants to be called an assistant for crying out loud. So they would like to be called associates. And, and you know, I don't think it's so horrible to tell you the truth. Everybody thinks, oh, they're going to be confused with the doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. I I don't think it's really going to happen. I'm, I think this is just a pushback by the doctors because they don't want them taking over their jobs and the like. 
Yes. Well, it, it, this is not going to go away, this discussion. Um, I gave a talk 20 years ago which talked about this question of how many residency training programs do you really need? Well, I should have expanded the talk at that point to say how many provider training programs do you need because you're going to have other people other than doctors who are going to be providing those services. And if you think, uh, if you think the uh, uh, deluge of all these new providers uh, isn't making a difference, it is. If you look and see who was hired last year, who's coming out, this, that, another thing, uh, this is a problem. And uh, who, uh, <laughs> who is that person seeing me has, <laughs> is always going to be a question. And I think the the name change, it actually, you can view it from the perspective of the PAs kind of competing with the NPs. You know, each of these groups, physicians, PAs, NPs, they're kind of their own separate lobby. And so the NPs have been super effective and they've gotten, you know, they've more rapidly expanded their freedom to practice independently. They have a much stronger, more powerful, more vocal lobby. And PAs are kind of falling behind a little bit in that. And I think they're seeing themselves, that name assistant is keeping people from seeing them as having the ability to behave independently. So I see that name change less as a play against your know, encroaching on physicians and more competing with the NPs for that, you know, whatever share of the market space there is that NPPs are vying for right now, which is debatable for sure. Yeah, well, I agree 100%. This is about uh, trying to have parity with the NPs when Unfortunately, they, they really have a difficult time because for the NPs to become autonomous, they just go through the nursing board who, who right. are su generally supportive of them. The case is made to the legislature that they're going to work out in the hinterlands where nobody else is going to work or something to that, that effect and that their training is such that uh, they, they're capable of doing that. And the poor PAs, they bump up against the medical board. Right. Uh, who, who's not going to advance anything to the legislature about independent practice because the medical board is not interested. And so many people, many PAs have said, hey, listen, we'd like our own PA board. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Right. All right, next. Um, ED and urgent care malpractice claims, 2001-2015. This is a 15-year study. Uh, appeared in, um, in West Journal uh, Med, um, Kelly Wong wrote this, and it, it looked at a total of all the various, uh, that 15-year period of time, uh, of the uh, cases, and pointed out that 66% of cases filed were dropped. So two-thirds of them disappeared in some way, and 23% settled for an average of $297,000. Now, going back over my career in this, I think that these numbers have only kept uh, pace with inflation. Uh, when I look back at what uh, 20 and 30 years ago we were settling cases for, this is, this is not an outrageous jump one direction or the other. This is, I think, pretty standard. Um, the, uh, and, and if you look at uh, all the various cases the, that, uh, that have happened, I, I think it's, it's been very steady. I don't know what it is like in California or Arizona, but the filings in malpractice in, in the state of Michigan 
have gone down with coma with uh, COVID. Uh, whether it's just too much trouble, uh, nobody wants to spend the time doing it, whatever it is, we are running less trials uh, and settling more cases now than we ever have before. There are although, less trials in Michigan. Although the numbers of cases have been dropping for a long time. A and, long time. Uh, so there's the sphere of malpractice is often kind of not necessarily supported by by the numbers. Look at look at the data on what happens if you go to trial. If you're yeah. part, part of the eight percent that ultimately goes to trial, it's like oh, it was unbelievable. Did you see that, Greg? Yes, yes. Well, you, you got to remember, uh, most people actually are not mad at physicians. Uh, physicians actually do okay in trial. And I think that that's true from, from California to New York. I mean, it's not like it's one area of the country or the other. Doctors in trial actually do all right. 93% got off in trial? Yes, yes. 93%. Yeah, yeah. I was bang my shoe in the desk and say, I want a trial. Right. <laughs> exactly. But that's all. That's after all of these other settled cases go out. If those settled cases all were taken to trial, that number would be a lot higher. Yes, lot but higher. they're not. And settled cases are, are, are settled for a reason. And that's because total uh, effort, total amount of time, can you bring everything together uh, the decision to to settle is often an intelligent one. I, I, you know, I had to talk with docs about this over many years, and they always got up on their high horse about, well, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to do this or that. Yeah, when it's actually explained to them about how much time, how much this, how much that is going to be involved, uh, a lot of doctors become much more reasonable about settling cases. Thoughts, Rachel? Yeah, so I was just looking at one of the tables in this study that shows kind of the top five factors related or causing these lawsuits. And the top factor is error in diagnosis. I don't think that's new. That's probably been echoed mm -hmm. in Forever. dozens of other studies. Yeah, but it ties back into the last discussion we were having, which is kind of growing independent practice for NPPs. You know, in a lot of states, as they were expanding independent practice, they would have it for treating um, prescribing before they would do diagnosis. Diagnosis was kind of a lone holdout in a number of those states because it was recognized as such a high risk issue, which, mm -hmm. you know, this case highlights. And I think for us in the emergency department, that's kind of a particular issue to us because that's what we're doing every single time is diagnosis. Whereas in a lot of other settings, that's not happening. You know, they, they come in with their known diagnosis. They're just following a treatment protocol um, I think for us, that's why this is a particularly sticky issue. And these, this um, large study, again, highlights it, that this is the, the most dangerous area we're involved in. Yeah, we've done a bunch of these over the years, and it's always the same thing. It's diagnosis, diagnosis. Di we're in the diagnosis business. Every new person that we see, right. every, it's, it's like, what's wrong kind of thing. And sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not. I thought the 38 people who won their jury trial they got $816,000. So, uh, and I, I've never seen before numbers of what it's estimated to cost to uh, bring these cases along. Um, the average defense ex expense was, um, 
$55,000. Is that, does that sound like a number, Greg, that you, you would think these uh, are the cases that got, got uh, I guess that's the average, but most of these cases got settled. Well, when I was president of the insurance company, uh, these would be very uh, reasonable and respectable kinds of numbers. Everything costs, This what doctors don't realize is there is a cost to everything, sending it out, having it evaluated, do this, do that. Nothing's free. And that uh, they have to understand we put money into the defense of these cases and I think that I think this number, as relating to what inflation has been, are are pretty standard numbers at this at this point in time. The, the there will always be those one or two weird, unusual verdicts. Um, you know, the forty million dollar kind of thing, which the public hears about, but is relatively rare. I think that kind of stuff doesn't happen very much, and and that uh, the numbers we come up with in in defense costs are uh, pretty much what we would what what we would expect them to be. There hasn't been any runaway uh, in in the change in the cost of defense in the last twenty years. I promise you that. Well, it's interesting that it's fifty-five thousand. Uh, if you settle, it's a hundred. Uh, it's double that, like one hundred ten thousand dollars. If you go to um, a jury trial, and if that's if you win one hundred ten thousand, and if you right. lose, it's one hundred fifty thousand. It shows like there's a lot more money in work trying to, uh, in the in the cases that they lose. They must be, um, they must be throwing more experts at this thing but the fact is it's a losing it's a losing case kind it, of thing. Yeah, you, know, it, you can throw exactly. as many experts as you want you know one of the things i find a little discouraging is that as soon as a doctor said here's that uh that some lawyer wants to pay him to or her to review a case you ever see what these guys charge yeah. it's like <laughs> when did you get worth that much money you know yes, it's like, exactly you make you know, a tenth of that is your hourly salary. Now you're an expert, you know. Yes. You weren't an expert yesterday, but now you're an expert. Yeah. Um, always they try to find out what are the things that are causing the most suits. And um, this had, uh, you know, it's hard to do that. Like 9% were MIs, 4% aortic aneurysms. Uh, oh, oh, no, I had it wrong. Cardiorespiratory arrest, yes. 9%. Uh, MIs, 4%. Aortic aneurysms, 2%. PEs, 2%. Appendicitis, 2%. So there's no kind of overwhelming kind of, here's what you got to fix because it's causing too many suits. Yeah, um, and, normally and, and don't, solicitor- don't ever believe that, that uh, because we've got a, a diagnosis written down, that's why the lawsuit took place. I mean, there are lots of reasons people get sued. There are plenty of families who uh, don't sue when there's things that happen, and uh, to just to just look at a, a simple diagnosis and decide that's why the lawsuit took place isn't 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 right. That's not how it works. Well, I think it's some value because aortic uh, aneurysms are not fractured femurs. I mean, you know, that, right. that's that's generally the area here, right? And something went wrong. Um, any. Further thoughts, comments? I think I thought this was a terrific paper, 
It is in the Western Journal of Medicine, which is a terrific journal. It's been kind of like, it's all an electronic journal now, and they've had some really ter- wonderful papers. I mean, I've not seen a study like this anywhere else. So I would recommend that if you're at all interested in this topic, that you get a hold of this paper. I thought, you know, this was looking at EDs and urgent cares, and I was interested to see how cases would differ between the two. And they talked a little bit about the the likelihood of the the suit being successful, but I didn't see much difference in the types of suits. And it it may be that they just weren't able to do that analysis, or maybe that there weren't differences, you know, significant differences in, you know, how many MIs were missed in urgent cares versus EDs, um, which I I think would be interesting because I I think we all know that people probably don't really recognize when to use different sites for service. That's true. That's true. And we have some, I think we have some cases kind of that's going to reflect that. Uh, I think the next one. Right. (laughs) The urgent care centers were 1% of these suits and the, um, Physicians were like 5%. So, Yeah, they looked at all specialties, and emergency department was the, the most common specialty to be sued. And of the ED and urgent cares, the urgent cares made up 15% of that group. Yeah. Oh, no, I, you know, I thought the, um, uh, the operating room was number one. Oh, it's close. And then they said inpatient. Well, the specialties. That year, t- yeah, so I, maybe I said setting with specialty. Where in the hospital, you know. Yeah. It took place, right. Yeah. Okay, moving along. It's me. Oh yeah, excuse me. Yeah. You know. But but by the way, let me let me ask you a question. If if you were in, since both of you are uh, have homes in the state of Arizona, uh, if if you were in Arizona, what's and having your aortic dissection, what city would you want to be treated in? Oh, Phoenix, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting as we look at all of these cases, it's not just uh, the type of doc involved, but uh, in a big state, a relatively populous state like Michigan, we probably have six hospitals that could take you to the operating room within a short period of time, you know, within a few hours of your dissecting aorta. Any place else? you got to be shipped. And we're a big state. If you want to be shipped out of the upper peninsula, you know, which is halfway into Canada, uh, it's a big, it's a big, a difficult deal. There are diagnoses which you're more likely to die from. There's no question about it. And aor- aortic problems are one of those. Well, Arizona is an extraordinarily rural state. Yes. And if you live out in, some, in the sticks some where you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that summarizes it pretty, pretty distinctly there. Rick. All right. Rural hospitals make it paid to become standalone emergency departments. Yep. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I, I've been kind of watching the idea of this, um, what do they call these 1340 hospitals, uh, critical access hospitals. Mm-hmm. These are hospitals that have 25 beds or less and which have these emergency departments. And they are, I think, are compensated at a higher level than uh, otherwise in an attempt to keep them viable because obviously they're not going to be able to provide all the services there. And there's a lot of transfers in, but it's the only place that people can get, get any care out of there. Your choices are to have that rural hospital or to have no, no hospital. But maybe there's something in the middle. 
and that's the idea of shutting down the hospitals with their, on their inpatient side and expanding uh, the uh, making the hospitals into like a freestanding emergency department. And the uh, feds are kind of interested in that. Three senators, some Democrats and some Republicans, are uh, pushing this. They're looking for extra funds for hospitals, 50 beds or less, which are above the formal uh, definition of a critical access hospital. This law is being proposed. Uh, it takes effect in 2023, which is kind of like a, a long ways off. But I guess the idea is if you change your hospital into a freestanding emergency department with maybe some outpatient you know, uh, clinics for uh, people who have more uh, recurring diseases, that, that might be a, a good idea. So that's the idea. They would be designated as rural emergency departments. Um, Rick, this question has been around since the day I started in emergency medicine. What should you do and what should you ship? I'm willing to bet in most uh, hospitals in the state of Arizona, um, you need to ship people because if you don't do it enough, you shouldn't do it at all. Getting the people involved in, in to handle certain things is, is difficult. And I, I think that we're going to see more and more of this trend. There's no reason for those people to have a cafeteria of this or that and other thing is stabilize them and move them. Uh, and you can't have a, a, a general surgeon who opens a chest twice a, a year and have any kind of reasonable numbers. Oh, it just doesn't work out. And he's retired anyway. And he's, he's retired. Like well, he'd like to. <laughs> There's no question about it. But again, as you get more and more rural state, I, I mean, I, I can't believe we've gone this long and we haven't had this kind of discussion before. And here's the problem. In a lot of these smaller towns, the hospital may be a relatively large employer. Nobody wants it to close. But the bottom line is the, it's, its ability to actually save people, to change the death number, is very small. And I, I think this is a reflection of the transition that healthcare has taken in general since before I was born, where most things were managed yeah, in the hospital. Don't, yeah, don't tell us. Talk yeah, about don't, don't, don't go there. We don't want to yeah. hear about that. No, but, no. but most things used to be managed in the hospital. And, you know, over the past decades, that has continued, the number of, of conditions that require hospitalization has continually dropped off. And so, um, you know, hospitals stopped being profitable for the most part um, when I was conceived. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> she's, uh, she's being rude to us now, Rick. Okay, and, go ahead. And so right. these critical access hospitals, the law for this was created in the late 90s uh, right. to, to, with the idea that although we don't need all the hospitals, we need some. And I think now we're just seeing the, this transition continuing. Okay, we don't need, you know, we don't even need those hospitals, but we need somewhere to go for emergencies. So I think it's just kind of the same, um, the, the same change that we, yeah, same progression we've been seeing for decades and decades. And so even though it's easy to look at this and say, you know, we, we really should be keeping hospitals open. I think you have to look at it from that bigger perspective and, and recognize that, you know, we need to think about hospitals differently than we have been. Yes. Yeah. There's no question about that. And all of us as kids saw these great structures in the big cities 
they're getting smaller and smaller, fewer and fewer, and the number of beds that are occupied has dropped like a stone. Um, I remember when young men with hernia operations were in the hospital for seven days. Right. Uh, women had babies and stayed around for four days. Now you don't stay around for four hours and they're handing you the child and you're being pushed out, out the, the door. Here's, your, here's a wheelchair out the door. Out the <laughs> door. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think this is going to, this is going to uh, continue um, to gain speed. Cause if you can't find some benefit for that time, nothing good happens in a hospital. Uh, I, think about that. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's possible this this really changes the healthcare landscape dramatically because two thirds of U.S. hospitals right now are considered rural, and this particular law only applies potentially to those with less than fifty beds. But still, I yeah. think we underestimate how many technically rural hospitals there are. There, there, there are a large, large number. You know, uh, when ASEP had its uh, unveil reveal uh, about a month ago that basically said there's going to be 9,000 more ER doctors than we need by 2030, uh, which was uh, like, oh, oh my, I didn't know that. Um, one of the things that they said is, well, they it was their belief that every emergency department patient should be seen by a, a board-certified emergency doctor. That's uh, And they, they therefore said, we'd like to be able to, as an option, when you're going to have these extra doctors around, see how they can go out into the hinterlands and work out in the more rural areas, which have traditionally been um, served not by board certified doctors, but by, you know, maybe primary care doctors who have offices, you know, by the hospital, that, uh, that, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I think that that's not really likely to happen, uh, that emergency physicians will go out to a 50 bed well, now it'll be in a freestanding emergency department uh, out because the, the the volumes are so so small there that that it wouldn't be able to really sustain them. Not only that, they wouldn't they they'd lose a lot of their skills over time. There could be some process where some smart company gets together and rotates people through these through these places, but then there's no stability in terms of knowing the nursing staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That, they when do I, that in Canada. Um, Ken yes. Milne basically goes to uh, some indigenous clinics where he's co uh, compensated very generously to go out there and see uh, patients for a couple of uh, days in a row. So uh, I guess if the government wants to deal with that and say, yeah, yeah, well, we would like to have an emergency doctor go out there. We will uh, uh, compensate uh, appropriately then, you know, that's their call. But building people, it's not going to work. Funny, there's no shortage of doctors. Um, I, I wrote a paper once about the fact that the, the number of doctors available uh, depends on how close you are to a Nordstrom store. And I showed, showed some charts and graphs that said there's no lack of doctors in Southern California. There's no lack of doctors uh, even in, in places like uh, Chicago. There's no lack of doctors in those places. Uh, it's in very far out places. And then there's the problem of staying good at your skill set. Uh, when I was in Europe a few years back, the Swedes were rotating 
a lot of their, and, and that's an incredibly rural country. Uh, there's only a few small areas of Sweden which are heavily populated. They rotate their docks out and then bring them back in uh, simply to make sure that they, they've got enough skills to stay good. Because, you know, if you, don't, if you don't intubate people occasionally, uh, you will lose your skill set. Uh, I don't think there's any question that if the government chose to, it could fix this, fix this problem. But it's a real, I think it's largely about money. I think they will, you will find emergency physicians who will be willing to rotate, but I think it's really a matter of, of money. Yep. And right now with this change, we're talking about hospitals overall could, could gain about $750,000 a year. You know, that's not the physician, that's the entirety of the hospital. So with the change they're talking about, not sure that it's going to be enough to, to lure anybody out there who otherwise wouldn't be tempted. Well, and, and the other side of this is a certain number of these hospitals are going to have to close. It, 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 unless you're big enough to stay at a certain competence level, you can't do it. And uh, here in Michigan, I've, I've watched the total number of hospitals cut in half. Uh, and uh, we're looking probably to see another 25% cut in the next 10 years. You know, but these are usually small hospitals. And so the com community wants those hospitals. They're going to have a bake sale, you know, the car wash kind of thing to try to keep that uh, going. And the, the amount of capital that they would need to do that is probably s smaller. And maybe there's some rich farmers out there that will, you know, uh, be generous with it. Or uh, you can get Jeff Bezos' wife to help out. Yeah, but it's not just the money, Rick. It's if you're not doing something enough. You shouldn't do it at all. And I, I think we need to be honest about that. Most most thoracic surgeons would tell you if you're not if you're not operating two times a week, uh, don't fall back into occasionally doing an open heart. Uh, what's Jeff's wife's name? Mackenzie Phillips. You guys don't know Jeff Brazos' wife's name. What the no. heck? Yeah. Well, anyway, she. Diane, my wife, is on the board at Pasadena Community College, which is a highly regarded community college where you, after two years, get into UCLA. And that's kind of how people do that. She was, that uh, college was given uh, yesterday, it was in the paper, $30 million by uh, McKenzie, and, which, is, which is a lot of money for a community college. So, right, I mean, right. it's like a huge, 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 a shot in the arm for them. All right, as a, that's now that's a uh, tangent. That's a bona fide tangent. Mackenzie right. Scott. There you go. Thank you very much. You know. So, <laughs> did you just look that up? Yes, of course. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. the speed by which these young people do this. My my nephew comes over and my niece comes over, and don't, if you ask them a question, I mean they've got the answer and they've done it so. So quickly, it's it. You think it's coming out of their head? <laughs> Thank you Before. for not calling me a millennial. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think you are a millennial. No, I. By the way, yeah. in my office, in my office, whenever I come in, they say, "Dr. Henry, don't touch anything. We have <laughs> we have twenty year olds who will do that for you." <laughs> and okay, I'm happy. You're you're not even a millennial. I don't think. No. You're before pre millennial. I don't know what's the cutoff. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't Let's know not talk about oh. it. Oh. 
Okay, so then if that topic was about kind of how to get necessary care to rural areas, the next topic about freestanding EDs is basically how to get unnecessary care out of highly populated areas. So yes. different issue. And and this could be, you could talk about this in a lot of different areas of the country, but um, it's become kind of reached ahead in Colorado in particular, which has been one of the hotspots for freestanding EDs, probably because it's one of the few states where you don't have to have a certificate of need to build something like this. But um, just a few weeks ago, the state announced that they're coming up with a plan to pay their freestanding emergency departments to shut down because the costs associated with going to those are are so much higher and they're finding them in highly populated areas with good access to health care. So essentially the costs are higher and the benefits are not really apparent there. They, they pointed out that some of the uh, freestanding charges are 22 uh, times higher than they would be in a physician's office. Yep. Uh, 22. Let, let me tell you, there was a discussion in Colorado about, um, and the family practice people are very much into this discussion. They're not in favor of it. They think it'd be better off if you paid them a little extra money and they took care of all of these other things and you could shut down a lot of the freestandings. Um, I, I don't think we have found yet what the balance is going to be. I mean, people want to be able to get care in a pretty effective manner, but, um, uh, we're, we're going to see a lot of different methods and modalities of, of giving out care. I think the COVID has, you know, pushed this a little bit. How often do you need to see your doctor? Uh, you know, we have people going on TV here in Michigan talking now about, oh, you know, we didn't mean that you shouldn't come in for real things or that you shouldn't come in to be checked and you shouldn't come in to have this and another thing. Um, th there's going to be some changes the way healthcare is given out, uh, w which we have learned uh, through the COVID process. Oh, yeah, the hospitals are begging for patients now. You know, it's okay, it's safe, it's, it's all right. We're not going to infect you, you know. We, wear I know we, have, we have sports stars on TV say, you know, I play for the Detroit Lions or the Tigers or something, and uh, uh, I, I'm not afraid to go into the hospital and get the care. They, we've actually seen a precipitous drop in the emergency department visits in uh in a lot of these cities and and you're a small margin business you can't afford to have 15 percent or 20 percent or you're going to have to lay people off um i'm, I'm i wouldn't want to be a graduating resident this year well most of these are owned by hospitals but uh the there is one group of eight investor-owned uh, freestandings, and they said that this is not, they're not going to close because of this, and uh, this, this is only Medicaid money, and so if, you have a, if you're in an affluent area where there's no Medicaid patients, it's going to take a long time to have, uh, have uh, them transfer enough money for uh, make it worthwhile for you to shut down. Right. And just, you know, the, the racket behind this, essentially why, why this is a better model than an urgent care is because these places are able to charge a facility fee. So that's where these rates are getting exorbitantly high. And prior to this uh, No Surprises Act that's 
not yet in effect, but will be shortly, they were making a ton of money on surprise billing because, you know, they didn't have, the physicians weren't in network. So maybe, um, you know, they were able to kind of bill out of network rates for these patients um, without really having to go through the effort of, of building up their insurance network. So mm-hmm. that's been targeted by this bill too, but but I'm surprised these freestanding EDs took so long to take off, actually. And I think this battle, you know, this is Colorado's approach to it, and it's voluntary. And as Rick said, at least one large owner of these groups says it's not going to affect our practice. And I think that, you know, despite things like this, this will continue to grow. You know, there's been uh, some large-scale bankruptcies in Texas over freestanding emergency departments because they, if you can... If you can get rid of that um, facility fee by by the insurance companies not paying it or not recognizing it or whatever, however they can do it, then it might be a little bit better. But in Texas, all you need to have a hospital is two beds and a kitchen, uh, and you you've now <laughs> made a hospital exactly. So, um, Med MedPack looked at this um, in the last year or two, and their recommendation was to drop payments to freestanding EDs by 30% if they were within, I think, six miles of an otherwise established ED. So that was their proposal. It wasn't to drop the facility fee. It was just to drop the payments, which, uh, you know, I think going forward, we're going to see a lot of different proposals on how to deal with this emerging issue. Oh, and by the way, 75% of the freestandings were within six miles. And many of them are down the block and trying to skim off from those hospitals the cream uh, having a concierge level services provided. Right. And they're located no. in, in areas with high levels of private insurance. You know, they're specifically not targeting areas that have unmet need. Yeah. All right. Anything further on that? Okay. Court prompted changes in aid. Um, okay. This is a, in about New Hampshire. We did this uh, story a few months back where the Basically, the judges there, when they were asked to deal with the hold, held patients in the emergency department, particularly we're talking about the psychiatric patients, said, this is, this is it. We're not, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And they made some ruling that basically said, you've got to get these people out of here within like three days or something. It was like very, very rapid, very, very black and white out, you know, make it happen. And this is a follow-up of that, which said, when they said that, they made it happen. There was, right. there was nobody being held in the emergency department. They gave the patients the right to appeal their being held against their will uh, at, by 72 hours. And so they thought, oh, geez, this was a big success. Well, it turns out that it was only temporary. And uh, more recently, they looked around for the number of patients who were being held for psych reasons in the ER. turns out to be 80 people. Now, in ha- New Hampshire... That, that sounds like a lot for New Hampshire, but I guess if you live in New Hampshire, you could understand that happening. No, 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 no. I didn't mean to say that. Um, but, in, but in any case, they have a lot of people that think that this, whatever the stimulus was went away, and the judge basically, uh, I guess, did not uh, hold the, the feet of the people to the fire because uh, by May of this year, 2021, there were... 80 holds statewide. Uh, the governor of New Hampshire basically said, we're going to work on this. We're going to get the Health and Human Services Department to implement short-term solutions like 
offering incentives to long-term care facilities to accept older patients. But but it's hard to do that because, you know, if you're a psych patient, you just can't get into a, a long-term care uh, facility. Right. This is kind of a case study that could have played out in every case. If you if you tell people you can't board patients in the ED and make them kick them out, they're going to come back. You know, it could have you could have written this about any state. Um, yep. I, and I think this is just this reflection of the huger problem that, you know, decades ago we made the decision folks with mental health shouldn't be institutionalized. So Medicaid doesn't pay for people with mental health to be in large long-term care facilities. And while there are a lot of people that probably were institutionalized that, you know, appropriately were out back in the community, um, I, I, the pendulum swung too far and it, it hasn't swung back. Yeah, yeah, I think that absolutely. Was during, I think it was during the Reagan administration when they did that, and it was the idea of integrating the people at the mental health hospitals back into society. And um, but it really, I think a lot of these people are on the streets now here in Los Angeles. I, I, I think that the uh, the biggest problem was that we had genuinely good people who wanted genuinely good things to happen, they were just wrong about the science. Right. And some of these people cannot be just turned loose. Um, they, they, they are then the victims of everybody else. The day that their welfare money comes out, they get robbed, the, this, that, and another thing happens. Uh, when they closed down some of the big Michigan hospitals, and we had big ones to take care of our uh, uh, our people, they had active treatment communities where people were actually getting some care. Uh, all of a sudden, they then filled the streets. And I'm, I'm sure, uh, Rick, uh, Los Angeles must have a lot of folks wandering around with just, they're, they're good enough that, that they they can't, do something else with them, but they can't really take care of themselves. 55,000. 50, yeah. 55,000. Yeah. yeah. It's, you, you, there is a group of people who the society is going to have to take care of. And uh, I know it's unfortunate, but I don't think we get a choice in a lot of these cases. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the Reagan administration. Certainly they kind of promoted this, the, the, um, idea of deinstitutionalization, but even with the passage of Medicaid, it was basically it was written that Medicaid won't pay for any mental health services in a facility with more than sixteen beds. So you know that's pretty much every mental health hospital, and that was written into Medicaid from the beginning. So that's that's what you're up against is is really a reimbursement issue for these people. And you know, no wonder there are no facilities because nobody's going to get paid to put people in them. Hmm, I didn't know that. Let's do some cases, guys. All right. Um, is Here's the question, uh, and we have a, a lawyer to answer this for us. Is a medical practice vicarious liability for an employed doctor? This is a relationship of parties question. Who works for who? Who's responsible for who? That sort of thing. According to the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia, uh, there is vicarious liability. Essentially, the, the doctor can be involved. He's in problem. And the organization that hires the doctor 
had carries with its own level of liability. So the the real question here is, um, who, you know, where does it end? Where does it stop? This is in this particular case, it was a um, it was a trial in which uh, forty three million dollars changed hands. That has to do with who is responsible for the behavior or what other physicians did. Um, difficult, uh, difficult problem. Yeah, this is a 38-year-old woman who had um, one of these hypertensive crises after you deliver. This is um, this. Uh, there's a term for that. Yes. And so she was in pulmonary edema, and it was alleged by her husband that uh, they give too much IV fluids, and uh, this did not did not work out very well. There were a couple of doctors in the same company involved in the patient's care. One of them was sued, and one of them was not. And um, the question was, was the company that they worked for uh, uh, liable as well? And I honestly thought that this was, I thought this was a standing kind of thing that always was the case. Rachel, isn't this the case? Vicarious liability? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I'm missing some nuance. But yeah, this, this is pretty standard. And, you know, you can make the argument... Of course, that employer should be partially responsible because they, you know, vetted this employee. They determined their work hours, their backup schedule, their, you know, whatever resources they have. And I, I do think this is pretty standard. I think yeah, maybe I, it made news because it was such a giant uh, verdict. Well, it, it's a big verdict. But what I don't quite understand is why would this be any different than any other case like this? I, I mean that 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 you have multiple docs who work for another entity, the big entity involved here. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure why this would be different than any, than any other case, right? Well, Rachel, is the idea here that uh, the doctor made a mistake? Uh, you hired the doctor; you're liable as well. Yeah, and the doctor was working in the scope of their employment, and so the employer shares the responsibility. Yep. In, in all law schools, they, they teach something of the tasty bread truck driver case. Uh, you know, when you work for tasty bread and you drive their truck and you hit somebody in, in the normal occupation in, as part of your normal business, tasty bears some of that responsibility. And that that's what this bias curious liability is. Was that the landmark case? Tasty cakes versus uh, well, I, I, it's it's one they certainly teach here at at the university, and 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 what what it basically says is, yeah, that person who's wearing your uniform, your jacket has your logo on it. When when something goes wrong in the uh, normal uh, pursuit of their job, now you know if they decide to get out of the truck and rob somebody, that's a different issue, but. In doing their usual and customary job, um, yeah, there's a vicarious liability there. Recurrent abdominal pain, a good case. <laughs> Scary case. So this is, I guess, borrowed. It was one of the cases discussed on Medical Malpractice Insights, but thought we might have a different point of view on that. So right. This In this case, there's a 28-year-old female who was seen multiple times in her primary care office, admitted to the hospital, seen in the ED multiple times for abdominal pain. 
never came up with a diagnosis. The only thing that was really abnormal that they found on any of her visits is that she was recurrently hyponatremic. Um, eventually on her, her third visit to the ED, her doctor came up with a diagnosis of porphyria. And, and so basically I thought, you know, the point we wanted to make is, you know, we see these patients all the time, recurrent abdominal pain, there's no diagnosis. And I think it's really easy to blow them off. But, um, I think reminding yourself that you do have an obligation to take these patients or, you know, kind of reconsider them each time. And if there's an abnormality, you have an obligation to follow that, that through. And, you know, thinking about this, I think if you saw this, this case as a physician and you missed a diagnosis, pretty much every court's going to give you a pass. But if you see them for the third time and you miss a diagnosis, that court's less likely to give you a pass. You know, there's kind of a higher expectation for you as a physician the more often you're encountering these patients. And I think this is a good example of that. You know, nobody's going to expect you to diagnose porphyria the first time, but the fifth time, maybe. Yeah. Rachel, tell me how many times you've made the diagnosis of, uh, of primary porphyria. Zero. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I, I, I mean, some of these are a little difficult, and but I think it is our obligation to get them into care where someone who who looks at these sorts of things does it. I I I wouldn't blame the average emergency doc who didn't come up with porphyria in his initial diagnosis, but you're right that at a certain point in time, we have to be willing to call a halt to this and say, you know what? Somebody else ought to take a look at this. And I, I think that little bit of honesty is what we want in every physician, right. that they're willing to sit back and say, you know, I'm not getting there. Right. I'm, not, I'm not solving this problem. And honestly, it sounds like they kind of did that. I mean, she was admitted to the hospital several times. And yeah. I, I don't want the message to be, you know, you as an emergency physician need to remember porphyria and diagnose it. But I think even if you don't know what's going on, just understanding that the more often this patient is encountering the healthcare system, the more likely the physicians are going to be, you know, thought to be to blame to some extent. And I think your, you know, documentation and thought process has to get better each time, not worse. Right. Right. Well, this woman probably was uh, exposed to a number of doctors while she was in the hospital. She may be exposed to different emergency physicians over her over her multiple visits. She's had multiple CAT scans, every test you can think of, and basically it's a uh, low sodium. Interestingly enough, if you type in hyponatremia and uh, abdominal pain into Dr. Google. Dr. Google will give you the answer. So I, I think that this was a case where, right, you have to hit the books a little bit. And it doesn't have to be somebody else. It can be you. It's like, I got a patient. This is the fourth time they've been here. And um, let me go back. because It's not in my for, uh, frontal cortex what's going on here. But I can tell you that if you are going to take a board review course for the concert exam, they will be talking about porphyria. Because this is... <laughs> This is considered to be in the wheelhouse of things that you should know about. Yes, it's rare, but it's kind of like um, we just can't keep thinking about gastroenteritis every day. We have to have kind of every once in a while. So um, the, the diagnosis here was made by Doc Martin. Um, yeah. Did you see that episode? I you didn't see Doc that Martin? episode, but I'm going to I'm going to look it up, Rick. Is that a right, show? So you don't watch Doc. 
Yes, it's a, it's yeah, a, yes, it's a yes, PBS yes. TV show about PBS. a doctor, a, a, a world-famous bright doctor who uh, was surgically inclined but couldn't stand the sight of blood. So they put him out into this tiny little community, and he knows so much more in terms of diagnosis than anybody else. He's popping up these diagnoses right and left, except he has absolutely no bedside manner whatsoever. In any case, there was a... One of his shows where they had somebody with recurrent abdominal pain, same kind of thing, and they and said, "Let me check a urine." And while they were waiting, the urine got put on the windowsill, and it turned a dark <laughs> color. And Doctor Martin said, "Purphuria." So it sounds like a predecessor Martin, to House. Just keep an eye on him, and he'll help you out. Uh, anything further? We'll move on. This is a. Um, 12-year-old boy who presented the, uh, uh, I think it was NP, with left groin pain and left hip pain, and with a, a prior history of a fall, which is, in this case, viewed as a red herring, because it had nothing to do with it, and it, if anything, it kind of distracted from the real diagnosis. A red herring was described in 1807. Uh, William Cobbett told the story of using a strong-smelling smoked fish to divert and distract hounds from chasing the rabbit. Right. Red herring. Very Thank good. you. Thank you, know, you. If you've learned anything today, you've learned where red herring came from. And anyway, <laughs> the, the nurse practitioner diagnosed a hip contusion, gave the ubiquitous tortle shot, which every time I see that, it's kind of like no better than Motrin. At, it's kind of like a show. Um, and But anyway, they do it. Yeah, by the and, way, I... Is anybody is anybody know of anybody still giving Toradol shots? Oh come on, get out of here! <laughs> Heck yeah! This is this is this is standard operating procedure. No matter what the heck's wrong with you, oh, it, it's like it makes the people feel like you actually I, did something for them. I which know. You didn't, but. I know. It just is. is real. Placebos yeah, yeah. are real. The yeah. what? Uh, what said, is the? What, I said what the is, placebo benefit is real. Is yeah, real? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so. This kid came back uh, to an ER and um, was re-examined. No fever, uh, but the pulse was, it's a 12-year-old boy, pulse is 150. It was like a, it was like a hummingbird, uh, <laughs> a heartbeat. And they repeated it with 133. Said rate was 18, which apparently here was um, elevated, because I thought 20 was the upper limit, but I guess it's Westergren versus some other kind of, said rate. He was discharged and the following day returned obviously septic. His white count, pardon me, I missed his platelets, 157,000. And a white count was um, 6,100 with 95% SEGS. In any case, he went, was discharged the next day. Um, he had a septic hip. This uh, sepsis got worse and worse and worse. And he basically, um, he, I think he died. Oh, uh, did he die? Well, I think, oh, yeah, I don't know what the outcome was in this case. This case was from, where was this case? Medical, MedMal Reviewer. And so it's a case, but we don't know the outcome of the case. Yeah. Do you think it's cases going to, dollars are going to change hands here? Yeah, ab For sure. ab absolutely. I, you know, one of the, uh, one of the people who taught me said, watch the kid walk. And if he can't put his leg down on that hip, 
infection is the first thing you think about. And I think that's that's pretty wise. I mean, you don't really have much of a story here of a kid with trauma to his hip. That's not what they're telling you. You've got some a, a kid with pain in his hip. And if that's painful, you, you got to have some kind of answer for that. The other thing is the the turnaround time, the when you're going to come back and re-examine sort of thing, uh, that's not clearly discussed. We don't know that. No, there's never enough of the detail to really uh, help you out. Uh, this kid actually did die after a two-month uh, hospitalization for his septic hick. Methicillin-sensitive staph aureus uh, was the bug, which I think is usually the bug. Yep. And, you know, it it the only thing out of all of this is, uh, you know, all of this lab work is off a little bit kind of thing. Um, and the heart rate, yeah. vital signs are called vital for a reason, life signs. Right. And so I, my, my two experts both immediately agreed that money would be paid here. <laughs> yeah. I think it's yeah. so easy to trust the radiologist, you know, but you, you have way more information as the clinician and you've got to use it. And that didn't happen in this case. Yep. Yeah. The radiologist, if anything, um, kind of, distracted people from the right diagnosis by saying there was uh, the uh, findings were consistent with a torn muscle or uh, some not nothing related related to fluid in the joint or a septic hip in the differential. So I think if when you go from a radiologist describing the, the findings to giving you diagnoses that may be consistent with the findings, there's a bit of a leap there. And I guess uh, septic hip wasn't included in what the differential was by the radiologist. Greg, you've got the last case. Oh, let me see here. 105 fever in a four-year-old. Now, that's not unusual. But how many people here have seen a four-year-old in the last couple of weeks with a fever of 105? Yes, it happens. The problem with this case is, um, and, and the way this, this case um, this case is a four-year is of uh, a young child uh, who's who's uh, got a fever and a child with 105 fever, um, and he's got a history of some vomiting. So, does that make gastroenteritis? Well, the last time I checked, gastroenteritis had to have both gastro and itis of some kind. So you have something in the bowels and in the vomiting. But uh, but kids with a fever often vomit, and I don't think that's diagnostic. I think gastroenteritis is a is something we put down because we don't have a better idea, uh, and and uh, we we could do something better than that. No so question this, uh, about it. This child was uh, sent to an urgent care center yeah. mm -hmm. uh, where the nurse practitioner quote-unquote, fearing meningitis sends this kid to the ER. Now, you wonder whether they wrote down on a piece of paper, you know, I'm concerned about meningitis or not, because I would think that would be really helpful to draw uh, drive more nails into the this doctor's coffin. Yes. Um, oh, no. That's Listen, when, when you've got a previous healthcare uh, person, no matter where they are in the chain, who uses the term on a febrile meningitis, you're sort of obligated to say, no, you know, I've examined them. I've done the following 10 things, and this isn't meningitis. But when they say, 
I'm sending you over to be checked out for meningitis. You better take that seriously. That's you know, that's not one of the diseases that people spontaneously get better from. Well, we have seen lots of people are sent over from a doctor's office saying, would you check this person out for X? And, um, and you examine them and there's no way this person has X. So they don't need their CAT scan or the lumbar puncture or the, whatever that that they sent them over for. It's always a little, you're going to call that doctor up and say, well, you know, to tell you the truth, I really don't think they have, uh, uh, any uh, evidence of X. And so we didn't really do the, um, eight CAT scans that would be required here or anything like that. It kind of it's easier when they said, I think they have X and then you think they have X and everybody's in the same uh, pathway here, but it's harder, much harder. My recollection is to say, nah, I don't think, I don't, I don't don't think we need to go down that path. Since, since you brought up that uh, particular situation, let me just say, I I was confronted with that many times over 40 years in the emergency department. Um, Be very kind to the doctor who's on the other end of the phone They've sent you a case to look at. They've complimented you. They want your opinion. Uh, I would be very happy to go over the case and say, what brought you in that direction? What did this or what did that? But to say, ah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. No, (laughs) occasionally they've seen something that you've missed. Be kind, uh, because you may have to eat those words tomorrow. Uh, The... um, these things, these things do happen. We have to kind of wrap up, but the, but this little kitty basically had, as you might have guessed, um, meningitis, which resulted in DIC, which resulted in uh, both arms and both legs being uh, having to be uh, amputated. The doctor working in the ED didn't have didn't have an extensive experience treating children, but luckily his experience was that. Over the weekend, when he will usually work, pediatric uh, patients usually had you know minor stuff, flu, strep ears, and so he he was okay because he didn't he didn't need to be able to diagnose anything difficult because n- nothing ever like serious like that came in. I think this could be a place where they could look at uh, the credentialing of this doctor and look and potentially go for. Um, uh, I don't remember the term now, but it's basically inadequate credentialing where basically you don't take a close enough look and you would have found out that had you looked, there would be these other people who had trouble with their children being treated by this doctor and therefore the caps on pain and suffering in your state don't apply because now you're, this is not a malpractice suit against, this is still a malpractice suit, but a suit against a hospital for um inappropriate credentialing is not a, a medical malpractice suit. Right. Different different kind of suit, right? And I think we don't see kids enough for pediatrics complaints to ever make it into like the top 10 list for malpractice, but they're just such a dangerous area because if you work in an area, I mean, maybe you have a pediatric hospital down the road, so you don't see enough or, for whatever reason, but you know, one month olds are different than one year olds who are different than 10 year olds. And if you're not seeing high volume, it's easy to become one of these doctors who, you know, isn't really great at recognizing sick Mm -hmm. and not sick. And I think, you know, having humility in these cases, not choosing these patients to be the one to, you know, hold down your length of stay numbers. um, I think like sitting on them, observing them, transferring them, if you're unsure, I think we've got a you know, really think carefully about pediatric cases if you're one of those folks who just doesn't see the numbers to to give you the comfort level. 
Yeah. I remember in the past when people would come in with a really high fear, vast, vast majority of 105s are viral, vast majority. Um, they would give Tylenol or Motrin and see if the fe fever came down. And if the fever came down, they felt uh, that it wasn't anything se serious. And if the fever stayed up, it was, which has been looked at and is totally untrue. The response to um, antipyretics does not in any way distinguish serious from non-serious. He gave a prescription for Tylenol and Phenergan. You know, you would have said, <laughs> Let, let's, let's give some treatment here. Let's observe this child for a period of time. That's really, really, really basics. If the child is still not working, acting so well, maybe I'll be, become more sensitive and aware that this is something bad that is happening. So, uh, an unfortunate uh, situation. Well, Both, you, you see what you know, Rick. And I think if you don't, if you don't see enough kids, you know, don't know enough kids, uh, it it can be difficult. I was always I was always happy that I about thirty percent of my practice was kids, and you know you got good after a while at 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 being sensitive to things. First of all, m mothers are often right, <laughs> and if they say this kid mentally there's something wrong, I take it seriously. You know, I want to go over them again and take a look. You know, I had three kids, and I, I'm surprised they survived. I am too, I, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was willing to say, ah, they don't look that sick to me. But, well, you, well, know, you know, you, know have said it, you said it in the past when you write a gastroenteritis that a small non-fatal lightning bolt ought to hit your pen when you write that word <laughs> right, down. Exactly. You know, like, oh, my God, I'm, I better be careful here. That's right. That's the one where we use the line, uh, the child, uh, what is it? He's, uh, he, he's, the diagnosis is totally inadequate and the child is pathetic and, and in danger. Uh, and I think that those are probably, uh, probably good things to think about. Uh, the, the, the beauty about, uh, pediatric cases though, is you can see kids back. You can keep them around. If they're not getting better, uh, you and I all know that a response to Tylenol or this other thing d doesn't make a diagnosis. Uh, you know, I've never seen that <laughs> a, a, in the diagnostic handbook. And I think we need to be uh, not just doing that, passing out a little medication, see if the temperature goes down. You need to re-examine people sometimes, and that's that needs right. to be done. Yeah. All right, so that's it. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me on this. We'll talk to you next month. Bye for now.